Well, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are in the middle of going through the book of Judges, just week to week, doing about a chapter at a time, considering this great Old Testament book. And today we're actually continuing the story of Gideon, who we began talking about last week in chapter 6. We mentioned that the book of Judges is really a story that uh, takes the life of six judges and kind of weaves them together into a consistent whole to tell us the story of Israel at this particular time in their history. Gideon is the fourth judge in the book of Judges, and he's really the first one where we have kind of a lengthy story. The first three kind of went through pretty quickly. But with Gideon, we are going to have several weeks of looking at his life and his service as a judge. Last week, we were introduced to this judge named Gideon and the circumstances that led to God calling him uh, to be a judge. Remember that Israel had once again returned to their sinful ways. They had 40 years of peace following the service of Barak as the third judge of Israel. But then Israel, after those 40 years, went back to their old ways, their sinful ways, once again. And as we've seen throughout uh, this, the book of Judges so far, that, that sinfulness brings on God's judgment. And that's exactly what happened here. God had promised earlier in the Old Testament that when he formed his covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, that if they disobeyed his law, if they broke his law, he would curse them. If they obeyed, he'd bless them. But if they disobeyed, he would curse them. And so that's what's happened here. Israel has gone back to their sinful ways and God has brought his curse, he's brought his judgment upon his people. Now in the book of Judges, the form of judgment usually takes the place, uh, it takes the form of a foreign nation oppressing Israel. So some foreign enemy, some, some nation close to Israel will bring some form of, of oppression that will occur by a variety of different ways. But in this particular instance, the enemies are the Midianites, along with their allies, the Amalekites and other people that live on the far eastern uh, part of the Jordan River. And these groups come together to raid the Israelite villages and to plunder them of their food. They take all the produce, and that leaves Israel, the Israelites no food to eat. So Israel's misery here is more than just simply the Midianites harassing them, being mean to them, right? This misery is a virtual famine. And not only is it a virtual famine, but in order to escape the Midianites coming and raiding their food, many of the Israelites left their villages and went to the, the mountainous regions and made uh, homes for themselves in the dens and the caves and in the mountains and the very stronghold areas. And so they've had to live life on the run, essentially. They've had to live away from their homes or from their villages. They're living in remote areas. They're living in fear. They're living in hiding. And it's constant. Because you never know when these raids are going to, uh, to, to happen. So they experienced this misery. And this misery, of course, led Israel to cry out to the Lord for help. And while the Lord will help his people, he will bring salvation to them, he first sends them a prophet to explain them the true cause of their misery. The Israelites had rebelled against the Lord by forsaking him. They had abandoned him. They had turned from their covenant obligations to the Lord. And they had turned to other gods. And they served those gods instead of serving the Lord their God, the one who had redeemed them from Egypt, who had broken the power, Pharaoh's power in their slavery in Egypt. The, the very God who not only redeemed them, but who, who made a special covenant with them. God sent that prophet to his people to 
remind them of his steadfast love for them, to remind them of his commitment to them, to call them to repent of their sin and to return to their covenant commitment. Well, while at the same time God was calling Israel to repent by this unnamed prophet, he was also working behind the scenes to save his people. And he's working in such a way as he is beginning to raise up a deliverer for them. That deliverer is an unlikely candidate. If you were here last Sunday, you remember that Gideon was, was not your, your prototypical warrior, your valiant man, even though the angel Lord addresses him that way. Hail, mighty warrior, O mighty warrior of Israel, O mighty man of God. Gideon's in hiding. He's hiding, he's threshing his wheat in the wine press. The, the depressed area is not in the elevated places where he can be seen, but in, in, the, in the wine press where the, where the grapes are trod to make wine because he's in hiding. He doesn't want the Midianites to discover him. And yet the angel of the Lord appears to him in that place. And he announces to Gideon God's plans to deliver the Midianites and it would be through Gideon that he would do this. He promises to be with Gideon. The angel Lord promises to be with Gideon and to give him success. But Gideon's first reaction was to accuse the Lord, right? You've been unfaithful. Where is the Lord? Why has all this happened to us? How is it that God who who claimed to save us from Egypt has now abandoned us here in the promised land? And then he goes even further to express his own faithlessness by not believing that the Lord was really calling him to be Israel's deliverer. So here you have not only just a, a weak and fearful man, you have a man who, who appears to be even hostile to God. And yet God is gracious with Gideon. And God is gracious with his people. And so as Gideon asks for a sign to know for sure that it's the Lord that's speaking to him and wants him to do this, God gives him that sign to prove his calling. And that's where we ended the story last week in verse 24 of chapter 6. Gideon had just received this sign and he had discovered that this angel who was really talking to him was, was signifying the presence of the Lord. The Lord had been in his presence. He was very fearful. And yet God reassures him with his peace. Well, now Gideon is set apart. He is called. God's going to use him to deliver his people, to save his people. But before Gideon can do that, the Lord sends him home to take care of some business. In fact, there at his own homestead, in his father's house, Gideon must first expose Israel's real problem. Because if they don't get that right, if they don't deal with that problem, then whatever salvation God will bring to his people will only be temporary, just as it has been before. That's where we pick up the story, verse 25. So Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, follow along in the version of the Bible you have open in front of you while I read from the English Standard Version. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. 
Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down the altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece on the wool, a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know, I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the, early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So, very interesting passage this morning. A lot of things going on here. Let's kind of look at it in three parts today. First, let's consider Gideon's destruction of the idols, of his father's idols, the shrine that, that was set up at his father's house. Second, let's consider the community backlash in destroying, when Gideon destroyed those idols. And then finally, we'll look at Gideon's sign of, of a weak faith as we see another asking for here signs to confirm what the Lord has already spoken. So as we look at these Part, I think we'll also learn in this narrative about the nature of true faith. As we go along, we're going to look at the passage through that lens, the lens of what is true faith. So as we consider the first part of this uh, passage we've just read, verses 25 to 27, we will see that true faith obeys God no matter what. True faith obeys God no matter what. <clears throat> now, by the end of verse 24, there is the expectation here that Gideon is getting ready to get the troops together to go and to make war against the Midianites. In fact, it's almost as if we could almost jump down to verse 33 where Gideon does send the call out to the other Israelite tribes and the men begin to gather together to prepare themselves for war. But there's something else that must happen first within Gideon's own family before he can deliver the Israelites. Gideon's own father, Joash the Abizarite, maintains an idol shrine on his property. He has there two signs of idolatry, two, uh, two figures of idolatry. First, there is a, a Baal, a, an altar that's set aside for Baal, an altar devoted to Baal. And on that altar, sacrifices were made to Baal. Now, Baal is the chief Canaanite deity. He is the storm god who the Canaanites believed would send the rains that would cause the crops to grow and that would bring the great harvest. It would be the one who supplied the food for their needs. So there's the altar to Baal, the worship of Baal, the worship of the, the chief Canaanite god, the, the storm god, the god who provides the rains. There's also an Asherah pole. So this is a monument to the Canaanite mother goddess Asherah. 
In Canaanite mythology, she is the wife of the creator god El and the mother of Baal. And in Canaanite mythology, mythology she was responsible for creating life. She is responsible for, for sustaining life. She's, the, the, again, the, sort of the mother goddess, the, 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 the goddess who, would, who they thought was responsible for, for bringing life and for encouraging life and sustaining life. And so she, too, is worshipped at this shrine by this pole that, as they go to worship her, they're seeking out fertility. She, if she's the life giver, if she's the life sustainer, they're looking for her to give fertility both to the fields and to families. So great harvests and numerous children. So essentially this altar to Baal and this Asherah pole constitute a worship center where Joash and his family worshipped these Canaanite gods. And we would assume that because in the previous passage we read last week, Gideon still was part of his father's household, that Gideon would have participated in these, this idol worship. Based upon the reaction of the community members and family members in verses 29 through 30, it appears that there are other members of the community who also gathered at Joash's shrine to worship there as well. Well, the idol shrine here illustrates and represents Israel's ongoing problem in the book of Judges. In fact, it is commentary for chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was the evil that they were doing? What was the evil that they were doing in the sight of the Lord? Well, they were worshiping pagan gods. That's what we see here in verses 25 and 26. This is the problem. This is why Israel continues to get into this situation where they're suffering oppression from God's hand, where they're suffering God's curse upon them. And so it would be a bit hypocritical that if God is raising up Gideon to deliver his people from the hands of the Midianites, that he would allow this kind of idolatry to continue, especially in the life and the family of the one whom he is raising up. And so he commands Gideon to destroy this shrine before he can go and deliver the Israelites. God gives that command in verses 25 and 26. He commands Gideon to pull down the altar and to break up the pole. And in the place of the previous altar, the altar to Baal, Gideon is to set up a new altar, an altar to Yahweh. And he is to take the wood of the Asherah pole and to put a sacrifice upon this now altar to Yahweh as a way of expressing worship and devotion to the Lord. Now, remember, why does the altar of Baal, why does that have to come down? Why does Gideon must come, why does he must cut down the Asherah pole? Well, remember the Ten Commandments. What's the very first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. God will not allow his people to worship him and to worship other gods. There is, this is not polytheism. This is not the worship of, of any god or every god. There is the worship of only one true and living God, the God who had saved them from Egypt, the God who had called them out, the God who had brought them to Mount Sinai, the God who had made, the, made a special relationship with them, where He would be their God and they would be His people. God will brook no rivals. He will not allow His people, if He is to be their God, to worship other gods. And so if God is going to save Israel, if He is going to restore covenant relationship with Israel, it must be on His terms, not their terms. He will not save them and allow them to persist in their idolatry. That idolatry must be purged from the land. So again, this command that God is giving to Gideon exposes the real problem in Israel. It illustrates the prophet's words back in chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. 
Israel's main problem is not the Midianites or the Amalekites or any of the other ites, the other foreign nations that God keeps sending to oppress His people. Israel's problem is themselves. Israel's problem is their idolatry. Because by continuing to worship idols, they are forsaking the Lord their God. They are forsaking the one whom they should serve. They are forsaking the one to whom they are to devote themselves. They are forsaking God. And so idolatry must be purged from their midst. God not only tells Gideon what to do, but He tells him how to do it. He is to take his father's bull and to use the bull to tear down the altar. Of course, the bull here is a a big beast, right? A big animal. Strong as an ox. We have that expression in our own own culture, our own language. The, The bull here is a strong beast that would have sufficient power to topple down this altar of stones, which means that the altar to Baal must have been a sizable altar if Gideon couldn't do it by himself, if he needed a bull to assist him in this. And yet the bull is also ironic. A bull tearing down Baal's altar is ironic because in Canaanite mythology, Baal was represented as a bull to portray strength and portray virility. Remember, what was Israel's idolatry in the wilderness wanderings? What did they build? A golden calf. A young bull. Right? This seems to be, again, showing their affinity for these, for these idols and for these pagan gods. And so here, using the symbol of Baal, God commands Gideon to take this bull and to tear down the altar of the God that it represents. We also are told, Gideon is told, that he is to cut down the Asherah pole. And from the rubble of the stones that are left by destroying the altar, Gideon is to build a new altar to Yahweh. And he is to build the altar not in the low places, not in the wine press, not in the dens or in the caves, but he is to build it on top of the stronghold, in plain view of all. It's as if God is broadcasting himself and broadcasting his salvation. In other words, see what I'm doing. There is nothing that can stop me. There's no one that can stop me. Give it your best shot. I'm about to make myself strong in Israel. I'm about to show the glory of my salvation. And so while the Israelites were hiding out in the dens and in the caves and in the mountains to avoid being seen by the Midianites, the Lord wants His altar to be seen publicly. The Lord has no fear. He is going to save His people. It is inevitable what He will do. No matter what the Midianites might throw at Israel, it might throw at the Lord, they will be thwarted. And so this altar is to be built. It is to be built in a place where it can be seen. Once the new altar then is built, the altar to the Lord, Gideon is to chop up that Asherah pole was made of wood. He's to chop it up into firewood, essentially, place it on top of the altar, light a fire upon it, And then he sacrifices the bull, his father's bull that he used to tear down the altar of Baal, and he presents that uh, that bull as an offering to the Lord. It is to be a sacrifice to the Lord, an act of worship, uh, an act of devotion to the Lord. Gideon's work here in toppling down the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole and setting up the new altar to Yahweh has two purposes. First, it exposes Israel's sinfulness. Again, that is the root of the problem. Idolatry has no place in Israel. It must be purged 
if God's salvation is going to have its desired effect. But secondly, it shows Yahweh's supremacy over all gods and over all peoples. There is no one like the Lord. There is no rival to His power or authority. God is once again broadcasting His omnipotence and supremacy over Baal, over Asherah, over the Midianites and the Amalekites, and even over His people. He is God over all. And because of this, Israel should respond in two ways. They should respond to the Lord in humility and fear of the Lord. They should submit themselves to Him. They should serve Him alone. And they should also respond in gratitude and love for Him. They should recognize that He is their God. Not the God of the Midianites, not the God of the Amalekites, not the God of the Egyptians or the Edomites, but their God. No other nation has this incredible privilege. And the fact that He has continued to be patient and kind and to repeatedly save His people over and over and over again when they continue to sin against Him over and over and over again, it should imbue in them love and gratitude for God. So in an act of faith, in verse 27, we see that Gideon obeys God's command. He gathers ten of his servants to help him, and under the cover of night, it says in verse 27 that he did as the Lord had told him. Gideon faithfully obeyed God's command. Yet we also see a crack in his faith, right? Because he did the work at night, not during the day. Why does he do this under the cover of darkness? Because he was afraid. He was afraid of the response from his family. He was afraid of the response from his community. And so as we evaluate Gideon, we can certainly commend his obedience. He did obey the Lord faithfully. He did everything the Lord told him, commanded him to do. He fulfilled all the instructions that God gave him. He didn't improvise. He didn't deviate from the plan. He obeyed God faithfully. That's a sign of true faith. When we possess true faith, we obey God faithfully no matter what. But at the same time, Gideon's faith appears to be little less than true. Even as he obeys God, he obeys God in his way. He does so to avoid the hardships that trusting God brings. The faith that God calls us to is hard. Causes us to make hard decisions. Causes us to stand out. And yet, that's, God expects nothing less of us. To trust God means to submit ourselves to hardships. And yet Gideon was looking to both trust God and avoid the hardships altogether. So he obeyed God on his terms. He feared men more than he feared God. So we're definitely seeing a pattern here developing in Gideon's life and in his faith. He wants to obey God, but on his terms. As we think about the one to whom Gideon points, who is Gideon pointing us to here, right? We're not lost here just in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is meant to point us to one greater. It's meant to point us to Jesus Christ himself. And in, in Gideon, we're to look forward to this model of perfect faith. As we look to Jesus, we see that he didn't shrink from or shirk God's commands. But Jesus obeyed them perfectly, without hesitation and fear. Think about what God asked of his son, Jesus was supposed to suffer many things. He would be rejected by sinful men and ultimately be put to death on a cross. 
even in the Garden of Gethsemane with the cross looming just hours away. Jesus, in the purest act of faith, put his life in God's hands and prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But the time when the call comes, when it's time to obey, to obey God fully on his terms. We're told, Paul tells us in Romans 5, that by, by Christ's perfect obedience, we are made righteous. Aren't you thankful that Jesus fully obeyed God? Perfectly obeyed God. We would not be saved if it were not for the perfect obedience of Christ. On the cross, as Jesus died for our sins, he was imputing his righteousness to us. It's what Luther called alien righteousness. A righteousness that is not natural to us. A righteousness that is foreign to us. That is alien to us. It is given to us by another so that we might stand righteous before God. This is the kind of faithfulness that Israel was to look for in the days of the judges. They were to look for perfect faithfulness, perfect righteousness. Though God will save his people through Gideon, by Gideon's example, they were to look for another. Well, now that Christ has displayed his perfect obedience, his perfect faithfulness, he calls us to imitate that faith. In 1 Peter 1, 2, the Apostle Peter identifies the elect exiles, that's us, those whom God has chosen for salvation. He identifies the elect exiles to whom he is writing as redeemed, why? For obedience to Jesus Christ. We've been saved in order to be faithful to him. This is our calling. We've been saved by faith so that we might walk in true faithfulness. We might walk in that obedience. To Jesus Christ. God has given us his spirit to work obedience in us. And he's given us the fellowship of the saints to stir us up to love and good deeds. Adam brought a great exhortation to the men yesterday. To remind us of the fact that we're going to fall. We're going to stumble. We're facing all kinds of challenges around us. And what do we need? We need one another to speak truth into our lives. We need one another to encourage us with the word. We need one another to pray with us. We need one another to, to confront us, to hold us accountable, right? That why, why do we do those things? Why is the fellowship of the saints so important? Because we're, God's called all of us for obedience to Jesus Christ. And I am weak in myself. I am weak in my nature. I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And yet God has been so gracious to give me a family. And to give you a family. To speak into your lives. To help us model that faithfulness that Christ himself modeled for us. So true faith, true faithfulness, true faith, true faith is faithful to the, what, what God says, faithful to what the Lord's commanded. Secondly, we see in verses 28 to 35 that true faith will offend others. True faith will offend others. Gideon feared that his family and the members of the town, the men of the town would would be offended that they would seek out harm against him and his fears materialize. Because the next morning when the men of the town discovered that Baal's altar had been torn down, the Asherah pole had been chopped up and a, an altar, again, I don't know how long this would have taken if Gideon does it under the cover of night, probably into the night, right, while people are sleeping, it's very possible that the, the fires of the, of the altar, the, this, the sacrificial burnt offering that's been lit and been burning for who knows how long. It's continuing to burn. The smoke is smoldering. And the men see this and ask what's going on. 
and they discover here that the, the altar of Baal has been torn down and the, and the Asherah pole has been chopped up and, and now there's this new altar in its place and there's a, there's, a, there's a bull that's burning on it and the men are just outraged. They are incensed at what they see. And they begin to, to, to ask themselves who is responsible. We don't know how they learn about it. it probably, I'm guessing that one of the servants ratted him out, right? Right? This man, Gideon did this in the middle of the night. However, they learn about it. They do learn about it. And it's true that Gideon is the culprit. And so the men go to Gideon's father, Joash. He's the head of the clan. Gideon is still part of his household. And they want Joash to turn his son over to them so they can put him to death for this offensive thing that he's done. It's interesting here that there's no reflection, there's no evaluation about why why did this happen? What's happened here? And what's going on? Why would this be the case? It's not like when Gideon asked the angel of the Lord, why has all this happened to us? Right? There's no reflection there. They're just angry, they're offended, and they want blood. Well, Joash, the father, Gideon's father, makes an interesting response. It's very diplomatic, actually, in verse 31. He says, But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. So on the one hand, Joash is being a good father and protecting his son from Mob violence, I'm sure, that that personal stake and not wanting to see your son killed motivated him to try to provide some cover for Gideon. We don't see his personal feelings about what Gideon has done. Perhaps he's really angry at Gideon, right? He's protecting him on the one hand, but maybe, you know, pulling him to the side afterwards and saying, what is the thing you've done? Why have you done this? We don't know what his feelings are. But we can only speculate that because the shrine belonged to Joash, because he was continuing to support it and, and give it encouragement, that he's none too happy about what his son has done to that idol shrine on his property. But on the other hand, he, he defends Baal, right? He, he asks them, will you contend for Baal? In other words, Joash doesn't, he says that Baal doesn't need someone to vindicate him. He doesn't need a man of the town to do his work, his bidding. Baal is capable of doing that on his own. If Baal is truly a god and if he is offended, he can contend for himself. He can defend his own honor. So in other words here, Joash is putting the ball back in Baal's court. If he is a god, if he has power, then he can defend himself. He doesn't need you guys to do this work for him. Now again, there's a bit of irony in verse 31 with the word save. Joash asks them, will you save him? Will you save Baal? It's the same word that's used throughout the book of the Judges to describe what God does for his own people, right? In the midst of these various crises, what is the Lord doing? He is saving them. He is rescuing them. He is delivering them from their misery. But when it comes to Baal, the role is reversed. Instead of Baal being a God who, who saves his people, those that worship him, he needs his worshipers to save him. Joash here probably unwittingly really exposes the impotence of Baal. Because as we will see, he doesn't save himself. He doesn't save the Israelites. Yahweh is about to do that for himself. He is about to save them for them. He is about to save them by the hand of Gideon. Well, this scene, this whole scene in verses 28 to 32 here is really a tragic one. Because even though God is working through Gideon to save 
Israel. Even though he is working to really save them from their idolatry and save them by restoring them back to covenant faithfulness, they are still clinging to a dead God. They are still clinging to the, to the idols that have been broken down. And it reminds me of Jonah's word within the belly of the fish. In Jonah 2.8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be there, theirs. The men of Ophrah continue to cling to worthless idols that have been torn down and have been burned up. And because of it, they were about to forfeit the grace that God was wanting to show His people. But God's grace is greater than our sin, is it not? God's mercy is abundant and, and works even in spite of us. Because even in this case, God is merciful and gracious to these people. In verses 33 to 35, we see that their faithlessness, the faithlessness of Joash's family, the faithlessness of the, of the town, the men of the town, it doesn't short-circuit God's work of salvation. He presses on because he is faithful to himself and he abounds in steadfast love. Joash's threat saves, Joash's threat to the, the men of the town saves Gideon's life. So with the altar of Baal and the Shearer pole turned down, torn down, Gideon now clothed by the Spirit of the Lord, which is going to empower him for this divine work of service, this task of deliverance. Gideon now sends out the call. The trumpet is blown. The messengers are sent out. And men begin to come and assemble from the surrounding tribes. And it will be these men whom God will use to bring victory for his people. So this is an opportune moment. This is the divine timing. Right? In verse 33, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east are, are gathering themselves together. They're, they're about ready to cross over the Jordan. They are crossing over into the Jordan to make another one of these raids to strip the Israelites of their food. And yet, this time, God has other plans. Salvation is near for Israel. And before we move on to the next part of this chapter, the last part of this chapter, let me reiterate one point from this section. True faith will offend others. When we put our faith in Christ, we are setting ourselves in opposition to this world because this world is opposed to Christ. The world hated Christ. He was rejected by the world. He suffered much opposition from the world. And so it makes sense that if we are going to follow after Christ, we too will face the same rejection. We will face the same opposition. That is why Jesus called us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. As we walk out our faith, our obedience to His Word is going to offend people who are not aligned with Him. There's nothing we can do about it. It's part, of, part and parcel of what it is. It's baked into the Gospel. That if we will follow Christ, we will experience rejection and opposition and suffering. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 21 and 22, Brother will deliver a brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 to 14, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue, continue, continue. So if we are practicing true faith, others will be offended by us. We don't have to bring it on as a badge of honor. We don't have to go looking for it. It will, it will happen. It will be a byproduct of our faithfulness. But as we've sung about earlier today, we have no reason to fear because we belong to the Lord and He is working through our faith to accomplish His purposes. True faith will find opposition, will be opposed. Then lastly, we see true faith takes God at His word. True faith takes God at His word. So tearing down these idol shrines was a big moment for Gideon. He opposed his own father and whose house he still lived. He challenged the prevailing religious sentiments of his community. He struck at the very heart of Israel's religious affections. But despite his fearfulness, Gideon obeyed God perfectly. And God was with him. God did everything he said that he would do. He gave Gideon success as he promised. He protected his life. He prepared him for what was to come. So surely tearing down his father's idol shrine played some part in encouraging Gideon that God would be faithful to his word. I can't imagine having endured that and not just kind of being on that sort of that mountaintop, right? Man, God really is with me. He's going to do big things. God's getting ready to save his people. And yet before he even takes on these, so he's already started calling the, the people out, the troops out, right? He's blown the trumpets. The messengers are going out. People, be, the men are beginning to assemble to prepare themselves for war. But before they even step into battle, the text points out another instance of Gideon doubting God. Why is it? I know Thomas. We, you know, Thomas is doubting Thomas. That's one instance. Why don't we call? Why don't we refer to the paragon of doubting as Gideon? Right? Doubting Gideon. We're seeing it over and over and over again in our passage here in chapter six. Notice that he asks for another sign. Verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So there both in verse 36 at the very beginning, and at the very end of verse 37, he says, As you have said. Gideon acknowledges what God has said. He knew what God had said. There was no misunderstanding. There was no lack of clarity. It was clear what God was commanding from Gideon, what God was going to do with Gideon and for Gideon, that God was going to deliver Israel by his hand. And yet, Gideon doubts that it is true. He places a condition on God's call by asking for a sign of confirmation, as if God's call in itself were not sufficient. And, in addition, previously in the last passage we looked at last week, in verse 21, when Gideon, again, doubting, lacking faith, asked for a sign, God had graciously given him the sign by the angel of the Lord. Remember that he had brought some food for the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord directed him to put it on a rock, and he touched the food with the staff, with the, the end of a spear, staff or something, and the, the food immediately lit into a flame of fire and was consumed. And Gideon understood that the angel of the Lord had really been in his midst. Well, God had given him a sign then. And Gideon knew that God was with him. And God 
helped him. And God protected him when Gideon tore down his, his father's idol shrine. The Lord had even clothed him with his spirit. In verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, empowered Gideon, came upon Gideon to empower him. The Lord had already begun to assemble the Israelite men together when Gideon had summoned them. They responded positively to his call. All of this was confirmation already, not even counting Gideon's tepid obedience up to this point. In other words, Gideon had already begun to obey some of the very things that God had commanded him. God had commanded him to tear down the altar of Baal and the Asherah pole, and Gideon did it. He took God at his word then. But now he wants a new sign. He wants a fresh sign. He wants, you know, it, really, Lord, if this, is the, if this is what you're calling me to. If this is really your command. And so he lays out a woolen fleece on the ground, and he asks the Lord that overnight to make the fleece wet and the ground around it dry. So if the Lord does that sign, Gideon will know that the Lord has called him to save Israel as the Lord would be with him to do this very thing. And so God graciously, patiently, condescendingly gives Gideon the sign that he's looking for. And so when Gideon wakes up in the morning, he checks the fleece, he wrings the fleece uh, out because the, the water had saturated the fleece, he squeezes the water out enough to fill up a whole bowl. Okay? God was gracious, gave the sign, okay, Lord, you're in this, let's move on. No. That sign was too easy. Maybe Gideon misjudged the sign he was asking for. Maybe he wouldn't think through what he was asking for. But he clearly understands what he's doing. And he knows he shouldn't be asking for another sign because he says to the Lord in verse 39, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. In other words here, he is putting God to the test in violation of Deuteronomy 6.16. Gideon knows that. He's admitting it. Now, it's possible that as he's kind of thought through what he's asked for in the first sign, that it wasn't difficult enough. Because what's the nature, what's the, what's the physical property of a fleece? What's the physical property of cotton, right, or wool? It's going to absorb water, right? So it would be easy for the, the fleece to become uh, wet, saturated, by, by absorbing all of the dew that's been uh, surrounding the ground. So the, the, the ground's dry and the fleece is wet. So he asked for something more difficult, a second sign. He asked for God to keep the fleece dry while the ground all around the fleece stays wet with dew. And again, God graciously, patiently, condescendingly accommodated Gideon and performed the sign. And Daniel Block, in his commentary on Judges, gives a concise and helpful explanation of the passage. I couldn't say the same thing as nicely as he said it, so I'm just going to quote his paragraph. Contrary to popular interpretation, this text has nothing to do with discovering or determining the will of God. The divine will is perfectly clear in Gideon's mind. His problem is that his, with his limited experience with God, he cannot believe that God always fulfills his word. The request for signs is not a sign of faith, but of unbelief. Despite being clear about the will of God, being empowered by the Spirit of God, and being confirmed as a divinely chosen leader by the overwhelming response of his countrymen to his own summons to battle, Gideon uses every means available to try to get out of the mission to which he has been called. The problem here is that Gideon could not take God at his word. God's call, God's mission were clear. 
But Gideon's fear, his anxiety, his doubt, his apathy all motivated him to look for a way out of responding in obedience. And yet, despite Gideon's faithlessness, God had other plans for him. God was going to save his people regardless of what Gideon was going to do. God graciously accommodated himself to Gideon by giving him not just one sign, but two. And again, Daniel Block explains that God is more anxious to deliver Israel than to quibble with this man's semi-pagan notions of deity. How great is our God. Gideon, as flawed as he was, was God's man for the moment. And yet he was deeply flawed. But Gideon is meant for us to look for one who would bring God's true salvation. And we think about that one to whom he points, Jesus Christ. And think about, again, his life and his faithfulness. Jesus took God at his word. There was no doubt in Jesus' mind what God required of him. There was no ambivalence in whether he should believe God's word. He accepted God's word for what it was. It was the very word of God that demanded belief and obedience. And so Jesus believed God's word and he obeyed it without hesitation. I think we can see this most clearly in Satan's temptation of Jesus immediately after his baptism. Remember that story? Three times Satan tempted Jesus to disbelieve and disobey God's word. And three times Jesus stood fast. He believed God's word. He responded to Satan's temptations with God's word. And he obeyed God's word. And I think the second temptation illustrates this point well. Right? Matthew chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 gives us the scene. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So what was this test? This was a test to try to out Jesus, right? Out Jesus as the Messiah. Put yourself on the corner of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and jump off and force God's hand to save you. And in doing so, it would not only force God's hand, but it would publicly declare to everyone that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was meant to reveal that he was the Messiah, but not in that way. Not at that moment. And so, what Satan wanted Jesus to do was to put the Lord God to the test. But this was not the way God intended Jesus to demonstrate his Messiahship. And so Jesus responded in verse 7, Matthew 4, 7. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes there from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. That's his defense. God told his people that they must not put him to the test. And so if Jesus jumps from the pinnacle of the temple, it would put God to the test. Jesus would be testing to see if God would indeed protect him with his angels as he had promised in his word. But Jesus trusts God. He trusts that God will protect him and defend him. And so he takes God at his word and obeys his word. And so Jesus does hear what Gideon failed to do. And again, Christ is our example in this. This is just one reason why we spend so much time teaching the Bible and learning the Bible. How can we stand on the promises of the Bible? How can we stand on the promises of God's Word? How can we obey God's Word if we don't know what God's Word says? How can we walk in faith if we do not know what God has spoken to us? And so the New Testament is very clear about the teaching of the Word. 
We teach the word, we hear the word, we submit ourselves to the word so that we can walk according to it. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. God calls us to deep faith, to trust Him no matter what, to not shrink when our faith offends others, to take God at His word without vacillating. We only need to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the example to which we aspire. And while we all fall short of that example, we can rest in the fact that His faith has made us righteous and seals us up for the day of redemption. He has given us His Word and His Spirit and the Gospel to help us to walk by faith. We would pray then that God would help us to live in that true faith, to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to walk in the Spirit so that we might be faithful and take God at His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word and we thank You, Lord, for Gideon and for his life. We thank You, Lord, that even in his weakness, even in his in his moments of faithlessness, that we see a lesson for our own lives. That we're not even to be first even considering our own life, but to consider Christ the one who would be the perfect example of faithfulness. And to model ourselves not after Gideon, but after Christ. We thank you, Lord, you've called us to that. We thank you also, Lord, for Gideon's faith. We do see an example of that at moments in his life. We pray you would help us, Lord, to tear down the idol shrines in our lives, to instead, Lord, devote ourselves to you alone, to obey you no matter what, to take you completely at your word, and not to be fearful or to be afraid when opposition comes. We trust, Lord, that you will work in us to bolster our faith, to make us faithful people, and we pray, Lord, that it will all redound to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.